Hi, I'm Michael, and I'll be reading the Bible. Uh, today we'll be looking at Psalm 90, so please join me in reading God's Word. It will be on the screen behind me. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with mo. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for your joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Good evening and uh, Happy New Year. It's uh, my pleasure to be with you uh, for the second time in Epping uh, this day. Uh, my name is Sammy. Uh, I, I was a minister in uh, Maryland East Presbyterian Church. And um, for the last three years, I have been a member of this congregation. This congregation, or this age bracket, is particularly have a, a soft spot in my heart, since Samia and myself, Samia my wife and myself, uh, ministered in such an age bracket for about 25 years. So I feel at home when I'm in a meeting of this age bracket. Not to say other age brackets are foreign to me, but this is kind of very special. So how about we come to the Lord in prayer before we look at Psalm 90? Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight asking for your presence to be not in the place only, but in our hearts. And for those online will be in fellowship with us through technology. Lord, we pray that our hearts will be open and willing to listen to you and follow you. And Lord, I submit myself that uh, I will be a, a communicator of your truth. And my Deficiencies will not be hindrance for your truth to reach your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A few days ago, uh, we celebrated or said we farewelled a year and celebrated a new year. And um, it, 
It is usually a time when we sit down and evaluate. Hopefully we have done that. And I thought that Psalm 90 is appropriate for this purpose. Uh, this psalm is traditionally also used for funerals. But I, I would like us to think about this psalm not as an occasional psalm that we read or pray at certain events, but it is really a, a, a prayer that we need to be mindful of every day of our lives. The psalm is significant because it's uh, written by Moses, only psalm attributed to Moses. Uh, and Moses, as you would know, is a very significant figure in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He's the one that took his people out of Egypt, and he took them through uh, walking through the desert up to the promised land. And through him, we have the five first books of the Bible, and all the time when, we, when reference is made to God's law, it says Moses' law, Moses' law. So Moses is a very significant uh, person. Now, Moses didn't have an easy life in leading the people of God. They gave him very hard time. And uh, every now and then he will go through crisis in leading them. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 most commentators will say this psalm or this prayer was written after an event that happened, which is a, a, a huge event in the history of Israelites. Uh, when, they went, when they arrived at the promised land, they sent 12 to spy on the land and the people. And the 12 came back with bad news. This land is too hard for us. People there are too strong for us. We cannot do it. And as a result of that, the people uh, rebelled against God and said, God, what, why, what you have done to us? And they directed their accusation to Moses, and they actually wanted to stone him. Uh, God was very angry and upset from them and told Moses, none of those people who thought that I brought them out of Egypt to die uh, in entering the promised land, now yet they will surely die, but in the desert. So their children will go to the promised land, and this generation will not enter the promised land as a, lack, as a, as a, as a result of their rebellion and lack of faith. So Moses took the Israelites for 40 years, funeral march around in Sinai Desert, and they were dying gradually one by one till they all finished. By that time, they came back, they made few rounds, and they came back to the Promised Land. So it's highly probable that Moses was writing this prayer while he was in this funeral procession. And that probably is shown somehow through the language and the meaning of the psalm. This psalm is attributed to Moses, and it's actually a prayer of Moses, a man of God. Moses had his um, deficiencies and faults, but nevertheless, the Bible calls him a man of God uh, because he was faithful to God even through his faults. So this is a prayer. Uh, we need to be thinking about it and probably repeat it uh, quite frequently. The structure is very simple. I'm not going to have my own structure. I'm just going to follow the structure that Moses did in his prayer. So I'm going through the, the prayer. Um, 
almost like a passage by passage with a title that summarizes the passage we are looking at. So I'll be looking at first at verses one and two, and I'll be reading them again for us to remember what we are going to talk about. So verses one and two, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Psalm starts by God. And if you remember, keep in mind, it will end up by God. And God here is the God of the creation, the one who created the whole world. When you buy certain equipment, the only way you can understand it is to go to the manufacturer manual. God is a manufacturer, he's a creator. If we need to understand anything about the world we're living in and our own life, we have no other source except going to the manufacturer, the creator, God. So we cannot understand what's happening unless we go to God. And that's what Moses did. He started by looking at God. And he sees that there are certain things in God's creation that look very stable, unmovable. And in verse two, he refers to the mountains. The mountains are a huge sign or representation of something that's big and stable. It doesn't move. In the Israelite culture or mindset, there is a comparison between the mountains, which is a sign of stability and continuity, to the, to the sea. The sea, the water, is a sign of chaos. It's moving all around, it's turbulent but the mountains are not. So he refers to the mountain to say, the creator of this most stable thing is our God, is the God he's going to talk about. And then he compares that God who's stable, not, not changing, he's the same from everlasting to everlasting, with the creation. And with the creation, he will come later on to compare it to the human beings. But he states in, in verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So this God who is not a changing God, he's the only one is not changing from everlasting to everlasting, you are no less than our home, our dwelling place. And the home, the dwelling place is a, a, a sign of peace, rest comfort. So we go home to find peace and rest and comfort. Now what's interesting here is Moses says, you have been our dwelling place. Similar meaning we find in Deuteronomy. He says, the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Again, can you see similarities in everlasting and, and the meaning of stability and trustworthy? So the comparison here is this God and his creation. God works in our lives through means, people and events. God provides for us security, peace and comfort through things we can see and touch. Of course, he does that into our hearts, but God also uses most of the time things and people. 
So God gives us comfort by providing us actual physical shelters, homes we can go in. God provides comfort through uh, other people, friends, family, church family. They are kind of a home we can get to when we need comfort, when we are troubled. God gives financial stability by giving us money so we can live and eat and drink and live our life. God give us health that we can survive and do what we want to do in life. The point is, God's dwelling place, as a dwelling place, he does that in our day-to-day life through people and events and things. He gives, he provides. The difficulty comes or the problem happens when we look at the things God provides as a dwelling place and replace it, replace God. But Moses, and in Deuteronomy, he says, God, you are alone our dwelling place. You might do that in our lives through things and people, but we should never replace what he gives by him himself. And, and the cl- clear point is God is the only one who does not change. People come and go. People let us down. Money can come and go. Health is not permanent. Even our dwelling place as home is not permanent. So there is no reason for us to leave the source, the permanent, the, one, the only one who is trustworthy by the things he provides for us to have a home. God is not changing so he can be trusted. And Moses said, through generation after generation, we have experienced your trustworthy Lord. Even at times when we are not faithful to you, you are still trustworthy. And the, the reliance on God here is in place because not only he as a person or character does not change, also what he does, which is love, care, compassion extended to us, does not change. So we can go to him with complete confidence. Then we come to uh, the parts that starts to be a bit gloomy in the psalm, when it starts to look at us in comparison with God, who's trustworthy, does not change, we start to look at the human beings under God's wrath. We are consumed by anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our days with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80. If our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is, a great, is as great as the fear that's your due. Moses looks at our reality as human beings, and he finds the human race is under God's judgment. And the reason for that is our sinful nature. We are sinful. And our sins are so obvious and clear to God. Even the secret sins, God can see. So we cannot hide from God. So our situation is exposed to him. 
And that God is so holy that he cannot look at sin. He cannot live with sinners. So human beings are under God's wrath. And in the following passage, which links that with the creation and the fall of Adam and Eve, where God cares them by telling them, from dust you're created and to dust you'll go back. So the reference here is clearly to why we are in such a bad situation, why our life is so short, why our life is not that great, is because of our sin in the light of God's holiness. Calvin thinks about this point and says, we can never understand God's anger, God's wrath, unless we understand his holiness. And then, of course, in view of his holiness, as a light, we can see our condition as dark. God's holiness is like a mirror. With light we look at, we see our condition. So it's not surprising that the human race is under God's wrath. God did not create us to die 70 or 80. God created uh, the crown of the creation to live forever. So any death is a life short-lived, short life cut early, regardless of the age. And that all happened because we separated ourselves from God, the source of life, by our rebellion as human beings. As we'll see later, this gloomy picture of death is not meant us to make us despair, but it's actually preparing the ground for the seeds of grace. And we can never see our need to the, to the grace unless we see our condition as it is. So it's a reality of the human being. It's under God's wrath. The idea of God having anger is quite unpopular and probably not heard of at many circles. That God who's angry is probably an Old Testament God. He's not the New Testament God. And we like to see the New Testament God in view of uh, Santa Claus, who's smiling with lots of presents. And even when we celebrate Christmas, what makes it so nice to us is Christ is a little baby who's totally helpless, and uh, even the song says he did not cry, which is total nonsense. But that's a kind of image we would like to keep in our mind. But God wrote is real. And we can ne never see it as it is unless, as I said, look at God as a holy God. He's the same in the Old Testament and New Testament. If you don't believe that, just go to the book of Revelation and see God as a judge. And human sin is under judgment. And lots of people don't like the book of Revelation because it gives this picture as well. But really and truly, this picture of God's anger is meant to drive us to acknowledge our condition and go to him on our knees. Acknowledging we cannot save ourselves. We are doomed. We are under judgment. And we plead to his mercy and to his love. That's why the Christmas, celebrating a helpless child, 
is really an introduction to the Easter, which celebrates a victorious Christ, a saving Christ. He's the same person who was a helpless child as victorious. That's no wonder why Easter celebration is not as great as Christmas. Christmas is more kind of lovable than the Easter, which has the death and the cross, and things are not so nice in the eyes of the world, at least. So it is not a message of despair. It's a message of giving us reality so we can do the right thing. We can seek help, and help is there. Then we go to a prayer for wisdom. I'm going back. Yeah, praying for wisdom, and that's in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. And this probably is a verse that uh, triggers us to preach this psalm during uh, in every new year. Now, we need to remember that we need wisdom. We have seen our condition. We have seen we are under God's judgment. So what do we do? First step is we go to God asking for wisdom. Wisdom to, for us to show us how to live this life which was said to be short. So although it is short, full of difficulties, it is precious. And because it's short, every day counts. And to live our lives, a life that's worthy of living, we need to be taught by God. God is the only school for teaching this kind of wisdom. The life of wise people is a life that acknowledges God as a creator. And in Psalm 111 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of God is not a fear of judgment. It's a fear of the creator who is holy. It gives God the right place he deserves. As, uh, as said here in Psalm 90, the fear that's due to you, you deserve because you are the creator and you are holy. This fear is of deep and deep and deep respect for who God is. And the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom because once we give him this prominent place in our lives, we respect what he says, his teachings, his commandments. We see in following them the right way to live. And we cannot separate following God's commandment from his personality, his character, and fearing him as a holy God. They come together. And uh, we learn more about how life is valuable when we come to the New Testament, which is another dimension. So in John 10, 10, the second part, I have come, Jesus is talking here, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, life is not counted by long or short. It's counted by the quality. What kind of life is it? Is it days that really count or just a number? 
And we cannot have a real life that really counts outside of Jesus. He is the one that gives the real life, actually the only life, because we read in several parts of the New Testament that separated from God, we are as good as dead, even if we are alive, alive by the flesh. So the only life we can have, the true life, is through Jesus. And this life is the good one, is the one that's worth living, the one that really counts. And Jesus came to this to give this life. It doesn't matter after that how long it is, but it is the true life and the only life. Now we come to the part after looking at the reality, God's eternal as eternal, in comparison with us, we come to Moses asking for grace. That's, that's the normal way looking at sin and looking at God should direct us to. It's direct us to grace, to come to God, and he prays this prayer. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that may, we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to our servants, your, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We should notice here that uh, Moses prays a very interesting prayer, and he did that a few times. When he says relent, as if God is going in a certain direction, and Moses asks him, please go a different direction, come back. And this is kind of interesting after he's seeing God with all his holiness. He can still stand in front of God and tell him, God, change your mind. Do with us something different than what you have been doing. And it's amazing that God allows Moses to pray this prayer. And a lot of time God allows us to pray a prayer similar to that. God, what's going on? Uh, I don't understand. And God listened to these prayers. And Moses is telling God, as if he's reminding him, again, that's something very peculiar, that as if God forgets, he needed to be reminded of that. He says, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. His servants are the Israelites, his covenant people. God gave promise to his people. He will be their God, they will be his people, and he will take them from Egypt, or even before that, to Abraham, to the promised land. So Moses is pleading to God for mercy, for God to change the way he's doing things with them, and he's praying for his servants. It's interesting here, if you look at the NIV translation, it says, relent, Lord, it's all written in capital, and translators do that usually to translate the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the covenant. The rest of the psalm, it uses the word Adonai as master or Elohim, the God of the creation. 
But in this specific verse, it uses the word that refers to God as the God of the covenant, which fits very well in the prayer. We are your servants. God, remember, you made a covenant with us. Please relent. And he asked God to uh, satisfy them with unfailing love that will bring to them joy uh, from the morning till whatever. Life is tough, but the emphasis is not on such toughness or hardness. The emphasis is the good life. So he's looking at the dark side to show, yes, no, there is another side. So it's a reality check for the good life. We know as a fact that Israelites all died in the desert or that generation. It's very hard to understand how God might have answered this prayer in Moses' time. It's highly probable that God gave kind of glimpses of answer that although they were wandering the desert, they did not all die. Their kids continued to live and the remnant of the people got into the promised land. So it wasn't condemnation eternal. It was for certain group of people. So there is a, a partial answer to this prayer. And the new, uh, the new generation actually went and inherited the promised land. And of course, they were joyful and so on. So there is always in the Old Testament kind of partial answer to the prayer. But really, this prayer takes its full meaning for us after we have seen God's dealing through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's when we start to see a full, full fulfillment of the prayer of like this one. So we are today in a much better position to, the, to pray this prayer than Moses in his time because we have seen Jesus. We have seen how God demonstrated his love. And as we have seen Jesus, uh, we are no longer looking for the promised land where joy is linked by uh, material wealth and health and so on. And that's why the New Testament looks at a different dimension of what we are looking at, how this prayer is answered. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So when we pray this prayer today, we have known better than Moses. And Paul is directing us to the situation or the fact that this life is not really meant to be all, uh, you know, joy and singing from external circumstance. It might be hard. We might be going through difficulties. And for the early Christians, just being a Christian has been a, was a source of trouble. Just by doing nothing, being a Christian was enough to be persecuted and not have jobs and so on. So Paul and the New Testament just bring our attention that we are looking at something much greater than what we can see, which is, you know, temporal blessing, which God continues to give. But that's not what we are after. We are looking at a glory that will never fade, which will last forever.
verse 17 emphasizes that God, please, please, give value to what we do. The work of our hands make it fixed, make it complete, make it counts. Life is short, but it is valuable. And what we do now has eternal consequences. And while Moses is praying for God to give fruit to, the, to, to, to their works, their, the works of their hands, we know that we have a different dimension today in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, uh, this passage is coming after a part that's talking to death and resurrection, and he says this. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So. Your life, my life today, as short as it might be, anything we do, every day, every minute, counts. And the point we have to consider is your labor in the Lord does not necessarily mean works we do in ministry, like as if ministry is the preacher, teacher in Sunday school, uh, the missionaries, the work that's classified as religious work. That's not what's meant here. The Bible has a bigger view of what being in the Lord is, what's work of the Lord is. We are in the Lord, and whatever we do in life is in the Lord, as long as our life is owned by Jesus. And whatever we do, we do it for our master. Regardless what that is, it's done for God's glory. And that can include minor things, eating, drinking, serving each other, giving a lift to someone, or even working in the garden, doing our daily job, driving on the road. Everything we do is labor in the Lord because our life is owned by the Lord. We work for him, he's our master. So what uh, Paul is saying in Corinthian, stand firm. Don't be shaken that life is short. May be sure, be assured. Keep going, keep doing whatever you are doing because it is for the Lord. And be assured that whatever you do is not in vain. God will affirm your work because it is in hand. So my friends, year gone, year's coming, but I may say, we should always remember that every day is a new year. Every day is a new year. We should live this kind of life, the only life that counts because it's coming from Jesus, the only life that whatever you do in it is pleasing to God and is having an eternal consequences, is never lost. I like this quote, and I read it to you. Life is brief, so Moses prayed, Teach us. Life is difficult, and he prayed, satisfies. His work at times seemed futile, 
So he prayed, establish the work of our hands. God, God answered those prayers for Moses, and he will answer them for us. The future is your friend when Jesus is your Savior and Lord. So I'd like to say Happy New Year, but I think it's a better wish for you is have a year that you are closer to Jesus. Have a year where your days, short or long, will count. Not will count for a bank account or a future in the, in the job, but counts for eternity because it's done for the glory of God. So may we be encouraged. The emphasis in the psalm is not on death, it's on life, but a life of a specific quality, and that will last. Amen.